barrier in Lewis's life between his spiritual life and his daily life. And so, you know, you would walk into Lewis's office and you would find him at prayer. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in again. My name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. Today on Christ and Culture Podcast, Dr. Keithley will talk to Dr. Andrew Spencer on thinking like C.S. Lewis, a fantastic Christian 20th century figure uh, that I hope you know a lot about. You'll certainly enjoy that conversation. After that, we'll have another edition of our segment on my bookshelf. But first, it's time for our new segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news or sports or pop culture or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about economics. A few weeks ago, the Biden administration decided to cancel a sizable portion of student debt. This causes us to wonder a few things, such as, how should a Christian think about debt in general? And here to discuss this is our own Dr. David Jones, professor of Christian ethics here at Southeastern. Dr. Jones, thank you for being with us today. It's great to be here, and it's indeed great to be back on the show. You've written a lot, talked a lot. I've even taken classes with you, thinking about things like anything from just general finance to to debt, to economic systems. First of all, how should Christians think about debt? Broadly speaking, Christians uh, obviously shouldn't have a, a positive view of debt, uh, which is not to say that Christians should avoid all debt. You know, there are um, several verses that, that come to my mind that I'm sure many of the, the listeners are um, probably thinking about when we talk about the Bible and debt or you know, Christians and borrowing. Proverbs 22, verse 7, the borrower is servant to the lender. And while Again, that verse doesn't say, well, never borrow. Uh, it does tell us that, hey, when you are in debt, when you do borrow, that does create an obligation. Uh, and in a sense, that's a, a form of, of bondage, which is not necessarily to be equated with, you know, with sin, but an obligation is an obligation. And so I think in general, none of us should want to take on obligations unnecessarily. Uh, yeah. And certainly we want to be aware that if we're borrowing money, that in a sense, you know, we have become a servant uh, to the lender. Let me just throw out a few more verses, and you know, we can unpack some of these in the following discussion. Romans thirteen verse eight: Owe no one anything. And so it seems like Paul there is, is saying, "Hey, uh, you know, be careful about debt. Maybe even owe no one anything at all." And it's, it's clear he's talking financially because in Romans thirteen seven, he's talking about paying your taxes, right? Yeah. Or one last verse: Psalm thirty seven verse twenty one. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. Mm. Uh, and so all these verses together lead me to the conclusion that I think in general, without getting into you know, any specifics, I think Christians should be wary of debt. Uh, yeah. And it, it ought not to be like the number one thing on our to-do list. Yeah, you know, I think about verses that I learned early on in life, and one of those being that uh, the borrower is a slave to the lender, which, by the way, you still owe me 20 bucks from that Red Sox <laughs> I, I, game. I guess, yeah, uh, <laughs> those, tickets, those tickets in the bleachers. I'm, that we, just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. He doesn't owe me 20 bucks for the Red Sox game. Um, I, I do have to ask, though, very seriously, I, I was having this conversation over the weekend with some, some men at church. We live in a society where is it even possible 
to flourish as a family, to flourish economically, to own a home, to own a car without going into some debt. And even the, the particular of the conversation I was in was one gentleman was advising a younger gentleman, look, I don't recommend credit cards, but I'm not sure you can avoid it at some point. So how do we think about debt in, in our day and time? Can you avoid it entirely? Yeah, so it's kind of that question of like, is it appropriate to like ever go into debt? Uh, right. And so if I'm saying that it's not inherently sinful, it's just undesirable. Well, when's it possible that a Christian could actually incur debt? And, and I mean, to use your illustration, I mean, in regard to maybe a, a home, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a mortgage uh, or a car loan, that type of thing. I think I could maybe sort of summarize, you know, what could be a, a 65-minute discussion, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe like, like this that. You should never go into debt such that either, number one, you intend to, to not pay back. Uh, yeah. And I think that's what David was getting at in Psalm 37, you know, the wicked borrows but does not pay back. It's not that he's lost his job and really wants to pay his bills, you know, but he can't because of some economic downturn. That's the wicked person who's actually borrowing with no intent ever to pay back. Right. Uh, and it, it may not even be a conscious kind of front of your brain sort of decision. It may be just that you have a credit card for the first time, mm-hmm. uh, and you just kind of go wild, mm-hmm. you know, racking up debt up to your limit. Well, in a sense, if you haven't thought about how you're going to pay back, you know, that credit card alone, and if you can pay it back this month or not, in, in a sense, you really are acting in a wicked manner. You yeah. are taking money from someone else, from someone's else, in a, if it's a credit card corporation, right? Uh, and you, know, you haven't thought about, uh, can I pay this back? You know, which would inherently be poor stewardship and be irresponsible. Now, that's not to say that you know, taking out a, a long-term car loan, a long-term uh, mortgage with the intent, and even with kind of figuring out financially, looking at your budget, looking at your income, you know, reasonably counting on your, your paycheck uh, every month, figuring out, hey, you know, I'm willing to give up a portion of my income every month in order to satisfy this, you know, this four-year car loan uh, mm-hmm. or this 15-year mortgage or whatever it might be. And you say, yeah, reasonably speaking, I believe that everything else being equal, I could do that. Uh, and I intend to do that. And, you know, God forbid I should lose my source of income. I'm going to do everything I can to find another source of income because I, yeah. I want to pay back every loan I take. And so, you see, it's really the heart position. It's the motive that I'm really kind of putting my finger on mm. is it's the idea of when you go into debt, What's your actual intent? Yeah. Uh, is your intent to pay back uh, and you're just taking on a larger purchase because it's really the only way that you could afford that house? Yeah. Or is it just irresponsible spending or is it intentional defrauding of someone? That is taking money from them in the form of a loan, a credit card, debt, with no intent ever to repay. So right after I got married, began you know being responsible for my own bills and eventually buying a house and so on, I remember multiple people saying to me, there's good debt and bad debt. Mm-hmm. And two categories in particular are two classifications. A mortgage, as long as it's within the reason of your budget, then that can be good debt because that's a kind of asset that can grow in value. And then education was another one that was uh, I was often told it's good debt um, because it's the kind of thing that should help to increase your income. Um, and it's the kind of thing that has inherent value and worth. And as long as you don't go crazy with it, you know, you should be able to pay that back. And even the kinds of loans and interest rates on that are not uh, are not overwhelming normally. But this, this very conversation, what you're talking about is, is being reasonable versus unreasonable debt. And here we are now talking about education debt that's being forgiven by the Biden administration. Has this whole system gotten to a place where education used to be good debt, but now maybe it's bad debt and people are getting into it, never intending to pay it back? Is that the situation that we're in? 
I think in part, and so what you've described is that traditionally speaking, we've said that good debt is debt when you've gone into debt because you have accumulated an asset. And so like a home goes up in value. Mm-hmm. Um, an education theoretically should go up in value over time, right? It's going right. to produce more income. And so that's been viewed historically as good debt or even things that maybe are not assets um, that are just sort of smaller things uh, that you can reasonably take care of. And, and so, for example, I mean, if somebody has, you know, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars of monthly um, income that is discretionary uh, you know, or, or it's, it's available for use, uh, and they want to go into debt every month, a couple thousand dollars on their credit card uh, with the intent of paying off that credit card every month just because they want to rack up airline miles or right. whatever it is, right. right? We would say, okay, that that's fine, right? I mean, again, assuming the person is responsible enough and knows themselves and they can do that, um, I think that would be fine. But bad debts, you know, would be taking on liabilities and taking on debts that are so large that you could never possibly repay. And that's really sort of, I think, the kind of linchpin of your question, in the sense that education has gotten so expensive. uh, It's far outpaced inflation, which is hard to believe given the record inflation we currently have, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, But, you know, for the past several decades, the cost of education has gone up so, so much that we got into a position, we're in a position in our country where we have individuals who have taken out school loans such that there really is no reasonable hope that they'll ever be able to repay that debt, right. Um, right. at least not within you know a, a reasonable half lifetime, right? Uh, and so, I, I think that's sort of where we arrived at. And so, maybe without sort of yet weighing in on specifically, you know, was the recent Biden administration's decision was that good or bad? We should certainly recognize that there is a problem in our country. Yeah. Right? That the idea that many people have incredible student loans that they can't possibly ever pay back. Not just that, that they don't want to, but they actually, they really couldn't pay back. Yeah. Right? That, that is a problem. And so well, what do you do about that? Well, we saw the answer recently that the Biden administration gave, right or wrong. I, I don't know if that's, if that's your next question or not. So well, back, let's, back, I, back I do want to ask that. Uh, what, what's your reaction to the, to the de- debt forgiveness? And let me, I don't want to posture it simply in a negative manner. I want to ask sincerely, I mean, isn't it a good thing that, you know, that students who are who are saddled with so much debt that it could be forgiven? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of virtues shot through in that decision, but obviously it cuts both ways. So what's your reaction to that? Well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, as I was just saying, I, I do want to recognize that there is a problem. Right? I don't want to act as if, you know, this is not a problem. This is, just, you know, some freebie that was generated for whatever reason and as if it's not a real problem. And so I, I think that there is a real problem. I just don't think, as I'll explain here in a second, that this actually is the best solution to the problem. Hmm. But secondarily, in, in another sense, I mean, for folks who, you know, fellow believers, you know, at your, at your church and your small group, people you know, you know, who have been or will be soon, you know, forgiven a great debt, and they're rejoicing in that. And there's a sense in which I, I want to sort of smile with them at their good fortune, right? right. And I, I think I can do that at the very same time, say, but, but wait a minute, sort of time out. Uh, they, I'm not sure that this actually is the best policy, that this yeah. is the best way to deal with the problem. And so really, I mean, unfortunately, in you know, our little segment here, I don't think we get to solve the country's debt problem um, and, and, and give a, hey, do this to fix the problem solution. But as far as sort of analyzing morally what the Biden administration has done, I've got a bunch of problems you know, with, with their solution. But my two main ones are, are, are these. If you just give me just maybe a second here for some theological background, I would say fundamentally that... The Lord has made human beings in his image, uh, and a part of being made in God's image, it's to functionally bear that image. God's a creator. 
he told us the very first command, I want you to procreate, right? I, I want you to, to act in a way that it produces flourishing. And so the idea is fundamentally theologically and the core of our being in our, um, the theologians use the word ontology, like in our essence, right? God, God made us to labor that we might flourish. So flourishing is designed to come from labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the way that we quantify labor, uh, or rather quantify the production that comes from our labor in, in our economy, it's, it's with dollar bills. It's, it's with, with money, right? I mean, money is a placeholder for production that comes from labor. And that's sort of a fundamental tenet of our economy. So the, the problem, to bring it back around to the Biden administration decision, uh, they're wiping off the books all of this, this debt that students have. Essentially what they're doing is they're, they're, giving, um, they're giving free flourishing to people who have not labored for it. Hmm. Right? And so I, I know there's a whole bunch here that we're going to pack for the next hour. But let me say it like this. Whenever you violate the principle of labor equals production equals flourishing, whenever you violate this fundamental theological principle that's part of who we are and it's part of the world that God made, it never goes well for anyone. And so, you know, for example, if you just look at like lottery winners, like when people come into a windfall unexpectedly, it almost never goes well for them, right? Because they have all this sort of production, right? All this flourishing, all this money, which is a placeholder for flourishing, unexpectedly that they haven't worked for. Mm-hmm. And, so, yeah. and so what happens? You, know, you fast forward and usually you know, within, what, what is it, you know, five, ten years, they're in worse economic shape than when they started. Yeah. Right? And all kinds of you know, divorce and robbery and murders and all these things are traced back to lottery winners and things, right? Or you just kind of think like a child you know, who's, whose parents you know, spoil him or her, right? I always say, you know, whenever I hear like a, a car tires screeching, I'm like, yeah, someone's daddy is still buying tires, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. the, like they don't actually realize the value of that material good, right? Yeah. Because they didn't labor for it. They didn't work for it. They were just given it. Yeah. And so they don't take care of it. And so th- this is my biggest problem with the cancellation of, of this debt, uh, is that essentially it's allowing for flourishing that people haven't worked for. Uh, and I'm afraid that long term, uh, that's not going to go well, ironically, for the people who the policy is designed to help. Mm, yeah. Um, and so that's my major issue with this decision. The, the second thing is, is I'm, I'm sort of worried about what it's communicating by way of the government's role in our lives. I'm afraid it might be unintentionally sort of communicating the idea that the government here is to solve all your problems yeah. uh, and the idea that the government – know, sort of is its own entity that it has its own money uh, and it can it can do these type things. Well, in reality, I mean, the government is of the people, by the people, for the people. We are the government, right? Uh, and the money comes from us and our taxes, right? The government just can't print money mm. and, and draw it out of a hat, right? Because the money actually is a placeholder for production that comes from labor. Right. It comes from all of our labor and, and the taxes that we pay on that labor. Yeah. And so I'm afraid that it's miscommunicating things about what the government actually is. And it may be unintentionally fostering or creating a sense of entitlement as well. Yeah. And I'm not saying that everybody who has a, a student loan forgiven is going to become some you know, entitled jerk. But it, it may foster that mindset such that, hey, yeah. if the government did this for me, then it's also the government's responsibility to do that and that and that for me. Yeah. Uh, and In other s- words, someone who was forgiven today that debt. They might say thank you today, but tomorrow they say, well, that's my right. So it'll go from right. uh, a gift to a right very, very quickly. And that's exactly what happens in regard to other government sort of forgiveness and entitlement programs. Yeah. 
uh, as we've seen that in the lives of those who receive the most benefits um, in, in that, that way tend to develop that mindset. Yeah. Now, again, like, don't overhear me. I, I'm not saying that the government um, has no responsibility to care for the people. I'm not saying that all you know, government forgiveness and handouts and things like that are wrong. I'm just saying that given the magnitude of this, this current, you know, what do they say, 300 or 500 or more billion dollars, um, I'm afraid that it, it may result in that. Uh, and so I know that everyone out there who is listening to this that is, you know, getting their student loans forgiven, I mean, they don't like me right now, right? And so, again, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not saying that this is sinful. I'm not saying it's evil. I'm not saying that you shouldn't accept, you know, the, the forgiveness. Um, I, I am saying just that I'm not sure that this was the best way forward uh, yeah. in, in regard to what, what could have been done. Yeah. Very helpful. Doc, thank you for your thoughts there. And speaking of debt, I'm going to have to take out a loan to put gas in my car today. So bear with me <laughs> as we sort that out along the way. Thanks for your time, Doc. Thank you, guys. Few Christian thinkers have been more influential than C.S. Lewis. Today, we're joined by Dr. Andrew Spencer to discuss his life and his legacy. Andrew Spencer holds a PhD in theological studies with an emphasis in Christian ethics from Southeastern Seminary. He works as an instructor for a commercial utility, and he has edited the book, The Christian Mind of C.S. Lewis, Essays in Honor of Michael Travers. And we're going to talk about the book a little bit more in just a moment. But I just want to say, for those of us who have known Dr. Spencer for a while, he we affectionately refer to him as Spence. So Spence, glad to have you with us today on our program. Thank you for having me. So C.S. Lewis, uh, why C.S. Lewis? Why is it in honor of Michael Travers? Tell us about both and how this book come about and how it ties into the Bush Center. Growing up, uh, I read the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, in fact, that was a, a huge focus of my imaginative life as a child. And I remember uh, saving up the money, the cash to, to go to the mall bookstore whenever we made a trip to the mall, which is 45 minutes away, and having my four or six dollars, depending on the edition of the, the Chronicles, to go purchase those. But it was just a kid's book at that time. What really opened my imagination uh, and my, uh, my concept of academic study of C.S. Lewis was a 2007 conference at the Bush Center, which actually became the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture on that night. It was the night that they, uh, they named it in honor of him at Southeastern's campus. So uh, I was an online student living in Charleston, South Carolina at the time, uh, taking some classes uh, as well at the Extension Center down there, uh, and then saw an opportunity to come up to campus, get on-campus credit for an elective uh, for the conference class. And so made my way up there for an interesting couple nights of discussion and debate about the life and work of C.S. Lewis. And so it was there that I met Michael Travers for the first time. Um, though I, you know, was in passing uh, during the conference, and I'm sure he wouldn't have remembered. Uh, and when I've asked him about it uh, before, before his uh, he passed on, he he didn't remember uh, that meeting. But I did remember the night and hearing him speak. Um, there's, you know, like the Bush Center has those two videos of Walter Hooper speaking. Uh, one about his relationship with C.S. Lewis, uh, which was in a plenary session, and then the after dinner talk 
which was the uh, discussion of publishing C.S. Lewis that Walter Hooper did, both of which are excellent introductions. So there's a close tie here. So Michael Travers then was uh, instrumental in bringing me on campus in 2000 and, uh, 2013 when I was hired in uh, on staff at Southeastern. Um, and I worked closely with him and with the provost's office at the time uh, and did academic administration to the point that when Michael Travers went to Oklahoma Baptist University and they needed somebody to help them uh, work through the accreditation process, he called and recruited me uh, out of Sabbaths uh, over to OBU. And so I spent two years watching Michael um, as he battled cancer and loved C.S. Lewis. And so uh, I nearly daily would go over uh, to Michael's office and we would talk and we would talk about what, what I was working on. Uh, but I, he often brought up passages uh, from C.S. Lewis as points of con uh, concern and points of encouragement as we kind of worked through the, the grind of academic administration together. And he was looking ahead to glory uh, because I think he saw even at that time that, that the cancer was going to win. So when Michael Tra Travers uh, passed on in 2016, I was left with kind of a sense of an incompleteness in his life and his work. Even though he was a PhD in English, he had bounced around in uh, Christian liberal arts institutions, uh, doing administration, doing ac academic work, some of it on C.S. Lewis, most of it on C.S. Lewis, but also on the Bible uh, as literature. But he'd never had a PhD student uh, because of where he had chosen to work. And so unlike a lot of PhDs who have kind of delved in and, and had an opportunity to build um, a group of students who would follow after them. Uh, Travers didn't have that. And so um, I reached out to peers and uh, to some former students, but mainly peers of, of Michael uh, that he'd co-written with or that he was associated with working with his wife, uh, Barbara, to find them and uh, solicited articles for this book that turned into uh, The Christian Mind of C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And I just, you know, I was at the uh, same conference that you're talking about where we got to hear from Walter Hooper. And I also share your affection for Dr. Travers. Dr. Travers was uh, that remarkable Christian gentleman who was gifted uh, in so many ways and in so many areas. Uh, he not only uh, knew Lewis backwards and forwards, uh, he was my son's favorite professor. He, uh, you know, he was an excellent communicator and teacher. He was also, as you said, an amazing administrator. Uh, he did things like institutional effectiveness and accreditation. And I personally wanted, uh, he, he personally was a great help to me during that time. In addition to having all of those abilities, skills, and gifts, he was just a fine Christian gentleman. There was a, a kindness to him uh, and a graciousness to him that made you want to be a better person when you were around him. I did get to go to Oxford with Barbara and him. And so we got to tour C.S. Lewis's house together. And so uh, I am so glad that you took the effort to, to go about producing this book in honor of Dr. Travers, and it is on a great subject. It is on the mind of C.S. Lewis, which brings up the next question. To C.S. Lewis, 
What is a Christian mind? I borrowed the title, not from Lewis himself, but from one of Lewis's students. Harry Blumars had been trained by C.S. Lewis. He wrote significantly through the uh, 1960s, through the, the 1980s or so. He's a lesser known kind of worldview critic that was very emphatic that we really need to recover what he called the Christian mind. There were six attributes that the Blumeyers listed out, and they included things like belief in the supernatural, recognition of difference between good and evil, uh, you know, down to belief in goodness of creation uh, and the acceptance of the authority of, of scripture and historic Christian doctrines over life. And so what we see is that second generation pointed me back to the idea that I see in Lewis. When you begin to look through Lewis, you see a continuity in the way that he viewed the world because he saw the world as a unified whole. It was that, a universe. Yeah, it is a universe, right? So yeah. it's, it's kind of the essence of what the Christian mind is. Lewis was deeply concerned with first things and not just with kind of the, the effects of those first things uh, in the world. He, he was concerned about the deep truths, you know, the deep magic, uh, what the things that were behind what made the universe actually function. That's the Christian mind. And it's also a piece of it. It ties in with Philippians, right? Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And thinking of others more than yourself. One of the ways that Hooper poignantly describes C.S. Lewis is of being distinctly more interested in everything outside of himself than himself. And so he wasn't looking for, you know, what's my place in the universe as much as he was, what is the universe and how do I fit into it? I find it extraordinary some of the things that you're talking about with Lewis. I mean, here's a man who is incredibly busy, but I read one biography that said that he received some 12,000 letters in his lifetime, and he took the time to answer each and every one of those individually. When I read that, I, you know, I was smitten with a guilty conscience because I thought about how many times I almost resent getting an email because now it's going, to, uh, you know, it's going to interfere with my busy day. And here was a man who was exponentially busier than me and yet took the time. Now, his brother may have been the one who ended up typing it up on a typewriter, but he answered each and every person, which is quite a remarkable thing when you consider the output, all of the work that Lewis managed to do. He was a medievalist mm -hmm. and a Renaissance scholar, yet he was able to uh, understand and critique modernity in an amazing way. And he was prescient. I mean, he died before post-modernity arrived, but he could see it coming. So in what ways are Lewis's ideas relevant to us in the 21st century? Lewis is one of those thinkers that you said prescient. I think that's, that's entirely accurate. But because he saw reality and pursued reality, and, and he saw it with a clarity, he gives us a window into better understanding our world. So there's a practical wisdom in Lewis where he points us to how to live uh, life in a modern world. Uh, you know, you think of um, his essay on reading old books, where he talks about the clean sea breeze of 100 plus year old books that sweeps away the biases of our own time and our culture. So he, he lays out some of the, the uh, steps to living rightly, but more significantly, 
I think Lewis embodied a medieval worldview. There's a recent book by a fellow named Baxter on the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis, which highlights this idea um, that, and, and Lewis himself, he called himself a dinosaur in his uh, inaugural address when he was installed as a chair at Cambridge. He was a man of another time. He, was, he, he not only was a medievalist, he had a medieval mind. So would this be sort of like his book, The Discarded Image? Well, the discarded image is, I was going to reference that, is, is yeah. a big piece of this. And when he works through the discarded image, what you see is a lament for the cosmology of the medieval world, right? Seeing the supernatural reality behind the world, understanding that even though the medievals, you know, they believed in the music of the spheres and they had these ideas that weren't necessarily scientifically correct, their ideas about the supernaturalism and the meaning and, and God's ordering of the universe gave significance, enchanted the world in a way that um, brought meaning to existence and helped people get through day in and day out. Most of the time, whenever our listeners hear the expression medieval, they think of a time that was perhaps predominantly superstitious. And I would just invite them to actually read uh, medieval authors uh, such as Anselm and others. And what you find is they are rigorously logical and rational, almost to the point, but far beyond, I would say, even the way most modernists are. But going back to Lewis, there are some who would say that there were actually three levels or three different Lewises. I mean, he wrote as an academic scholar to scholar, and that would be typically his work on medieval poetry and medieval literature. But then he wrote on two other levels, nonfiction and fiction. Talk to us about how did he employ both genres? There's a close relationship between Lewis's fiction and his nonfiction. Lewis famously is described by his biographers as everything Lewis thought was in everything Lewis wrote. Uh, and there's a, there's a unity within that. So even when you read his Oxford History of the English Language, that monumental academic volume you read some of the, the, the same ideas that you're going to read in Mere Christianity or the Space Trilogy. But what Lewis did with his fiction in particular was he was trying to imaginatively express the reality of the worldview that he held. So in the Chronicles of Narnia, you have what is children's literature, but some of which is deeply philosophical. So I think of the discussion of reality that Puddleglum has when the, the green witch is burning the incense and confusing them in the underworld when they're getting ready to, to rescue Prince Rillian. What Lewis is doing right there is he's setting a groundwork uh, for a child to read that and better understand modernity and the problems with representation and symbolism and the, the fact that what we see isn't everything that there is. And so his ideas there are strongly connected to some of his ideas in, for example, uh, the essay Transposition, where he talks about how uh, this reality that we see, the physical material world, is actually pointing toward something greater. It's a transposition uh, of what we see. And, you know, similarly, you can find parallels between his essays, like The Inner Ring, uh, and his, his longer, it's three conference presentations he did that are, that are bundled together in The Abolition of Man, uh, and what we see in That Hideous Strength. Um, so That Hideous Strength, it wouldn't be fair to reduce Lewis to this, but in some ways is a, an imaginative exposition 
on the ideas that he explained in those essays and those non nonfiction works. You've already mentioned a, a number of different works, and you've anticipated my question. And was I was going to say what might be some some works that perhaps the typical Lewis reader or someone who's just barely aware of the works of Lewis, if they were going to dive deeper, what books might you recommend? It depends on what the person's interest is, because, you know, you mentioned the, just the breadth of what Lewis has done. I mean, he did what is still widely read science fiction in his space trilogy. Uh, so somebody that has a, an interest in kind of realistic science fiction with space travel involved is going to find a wealth of thoughtful information there and exploration. If somebody hasn't has just read the Chronicles of Narnia, if that's been the foothold that they've gotten, then picking up something like his Mere Christianity, some of his essays, like one of the essay collections, maybe uh, Christian Reflections or God in the Dock, is going to be a good way to get into C.S. Lewis has done. Somebody who's an English scholar, right, is interested in how literature works. There's half a dozen books that Lewis has done, not just his Oxford History of the English Language, but, you know, he wrote a, a book, Studies on Words, which is a collection of essays published by Cambridge University Press now that thinks about linguistic meaning uh, behind words and how it's changed. And so he's, he's really in that 20th century language game mode and thinking through those things. And so it really depends on what somebody's particular interest is. But the cool thing about, I think, C.S. Lewis is that no matter what your interest is, there's something that you can explore and find engaging. So what's your favorite book of Lewis? The books that I go back to are the Chronicles of Narnia. In particular, uh, I, I love Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and I love uh, The Horse and His Boy, because those stories set me back into the imaginative environment of my childhood and bring back both a lot of the, the kind of halcyon days, uh, but also uh, now that I've read them and reread them, give me a deeper understanding of what Lewis is doing and, and kind of the beauty behind it. What would you consider his most important work then? Well, his most important for right now, if I were going to recommend one book that everybody would read that would help them understand the world as it is, it's The Abolition of Man. And then right behind that would be That Hideous Strength. Um, and, you know, The Abolition of Man was named National Reviews, one of their top 100 nonfiction books of the 20th century, because he really gets in that the some of the underlying problems with modernity and post-modernity or late modernity, uh, as some call it, and what it's done to our ability to cope and to live. And he, he begins to explain and unpack how we should recognize the problem and therefore how we can live in light of those things. So we are focusing on spiritual formation for this season. If Lewis was alive today, what, what spiritual uh, practice or what disciplines do you think that Lewis would recommend for us today for spiritual formation? One of the few books that Lewis actually wrote on any sort of devotional practice was his Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. Do you think of him as a, as a big brain right? Uh, writing books consistently, but he was known to his uh, close associates as somebody who prayed. And Walter Hooper describes there's no barrier in Lewis's life between 
his spiritual life and his daily life. And so, you know, you would walk into Lewis's office and you would find him at prayer. One of his close friends in uh, James Como's book, Breakfast with C.S. Lewis, describes going to pick Lewis up for something and finding him pacing back and forth on the on the front porch. And they asked him what he's doing. And he said, I'm saying my prayers. Mm-hmm. And so you get that kind of how-to in, in Letters to Malcolm. Um, you get reference to how important it is in multiple places in screw tape letters. So I think if you were to pose that question to Lewis, I think he would say prayer is one of the most significant spiritual disciplines that we need to develop in a world that's constantly trying to pull us away from it. I, I do think you're right that that would be something that he would emphasize to us. And I think he would be right in saying that that is one of our great needs. Uh, We've been talking to Andrew Spencer, uh, affectionately known as Spence. Spence, tell us once once again, what is the title of your book and what it's about? So the book is The Christian Mind of C.S. Lewis, Essays in Honor of Michael Travers. And so it's a collection of essays by uh, friends of Michael Travers, including a number of people that have uh, invested significant portions of their life studying C.S. Lewis on uh, different ways that different disciplines within the, the Christian world interface uh, with, with life, with reality, uh, with the work uh, and the legacy of C.S. Lewis. Dr. Spencer, thank you for being with us today. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, probably our favorite segment, Nathaniel. I think that's uh, listeners' favorite. It's also the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. And today we have Dr. Christy Thornton. She is an assistant professor of Christian thought at Southeastern Seminary and the College at Southeastern. Dr. Thornton, what is on your bookshelf today? Incarnation by Thomas Forsyth Torrance. Now, this book played a really important role in my life because it's the first book that sent me down the path that eventually led to my dissertation on T.F. Torrance. And at the time, I was looking for someone who was theologically rigorous, but also shared some of my convictions. So mission's really important to me, and the value of the church was really important to me. So I read through this book, and it was this really weird moment where I was reading a theologian who was clearly thinking really well, clearly with concision and precision. But there are moments that, like, it was so obvious that he really loves Jesus and, like, really loves his church. So he comes in and out of these, like, academic discourse to these moments of kind of um, expressions of his own praise and admiration for what God has done in Christ— And everything that Torrance does, he does centered on the incarnation. So his whole theological project has to do with the fact that God became human for us and our salvation. And this book is a 300-page exposition for what God has done in Christ. So I left it encouraged in my faith, strengthened in my mind, uh, and encouraged for the mission, which was a special spot. So I'd recommend it to anyone who's interested in learning more and reflecting on the faith that we have in Christ. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Christ and Culture. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening to us, and we look forward to seeing you next week.